0: So uh, we're going to be uh, in the book of Psalms today. We're going to be in chapter 22. I don't even know how to follow that. Just so you guys know, I'm just going to transition right into uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. We're going to be in the book of Psalms. We're going to be in chapter 22. And as you're turning there, I just want to unpack why I believe that the Lord led us to this book and this chapter tonight. Well, we've been in the book of Psalms. um, But this particular Psalms is very much connected to what Pastor Craig spoke on this weekend. Uh, The one thing I wanted you to see as we're walking through this is that there's some fascinating points of interest is that David wrote this psalm about, I'm going to round up, I think it's 850 years, but I'm going to say a thousand because it sounds cooler. A thousand years before Jesus Christ, right? So that's a long time before Jesus Christ. And what you're going to see described here um, is what Christ went through on the cross, but that what's amazing is this is smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. What you're also going to find fascinating as you walk through this is that this is written by a king for a church service. So you know as David, as King David, would write uh, benedictions or prayers or worship songs for, you know, the, the upcoming, you know, say Sunday worship service. Can you imagine if you got, a, we like got here and Rachel's like, hey, President whoever, Trump, Biden, whoever, just wrote this. We're going to sing it today. You'd be like, what in the world is happening right now? I mean, wouldn't that be a fascinating? You would love to see a president do that, wouldn't you? Be uh, directed by Jesus Christ into leading the nation into worship. Um, But that's exactly what would happen. And then when people came in to worship that day, this is the psalm that they worshiped to. No doubt, it was probably somewhat confusing, but I want to let you know, nonetheless, it is a messianic uh, prophecy But what's interesting is is we're going to take a look at Christ, not in the way we looked at him in John 19. In John 19, we see the circumstances. We see the atmosphere. And most of the time, I don't know if maybe it's just me, sometimes I just see the divine nature of Jesus, right? Like I see this strong person who is sent by God, who is God, who stands next to Pontius Pilate, who takes the beating, who gets sent to the cross, who has these seven cries that are so beautiful, you know, from the cross. And to go, this is divine Jesus. But today we're going to look at Jesus the man. So as you're walking through this, I want you to think not so much as Jesus Christ, the, the, the son of God in that respect, but Jesus Christ, the man who had to take this sacrifice. So you're going to see a lot of human elements come Uh, And through this, and to to me, it brings out a richness of his devotion to us. So if you could join with me in verse one, we're going to see in this first verse, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And if you know anything about the passion of Christ, you can already hear Jesus on the cross. Um, And just so you know, at this particular time, scholars have not found any reason for David to write something like this. They believe that he just received a prophecy from the Lord and just started writing this. So there's nothing associated in his life at this time. But this is the fourth cry that Jesus gave from the cross. Like I said before, there's seven cries that Jesus gives from the cross. This is the fourth. And um, if you want to look at the screen uh, um, behind me, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 47, you can see now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, and until the ninth hour, and above the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And some of the bystanders hearing it said, "This man is calling Elijah." So this is the part of the day that Jesus was hanging from the cross from about noon to three that you saw the darkness come over the land. And and some of us would look at that as a way as the darkness fell over the land because there was a separation between light and dark, and God was actually removing himself from his relationship with Jesus. And you can see this word kind of sticks out to me, forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It has like a haunting ring to it. And so I do what I always do. I always go to the dictionary to go, why does this word bother me? I'm going to put that up there for you as well. Forsake. It's more than just what I thought it was, just to leave, but it was to abandon, to desert, but also to renounce and give up. You must be really done with somebody to give them up or renounce them. And that's what Jesus is crying out. God, why have you renounced me? Why have you given me up? Why have you deserted me? And, you know, I can sit here and look at this, and um, we can turn this into this situation, but have you ever truly felt deserted by God on this level? I, you know, I've, I've felt far away from God's fellowship. Has anyone felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I mean, instantly, you know, I make the joke. I'm having a great day. I'm listening to Z88.3, and as soon as I get a nail on my tire, I'm like, God, why have you abandoned me? <laughs> I have to change a tire on the side of 95. Are you kidding me? But that's nothing like this. Like, Jesus is saying there has been a severance there is a break in the relationship. It's gone. And, I, and I, 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 I can never say that no matter how I've ever dealt with a crisis, I've ever truly felt like God was far away. And yet Christ is calling this out right now. And I want to let you know there's a reason why this is happening. Because Jesus Christ is perfect. We know that. Jesus Christ was the only man to live a perfect life, and thus his death is innocence on the cross, right? But death itself is an artificial event that has come into the world of God that was never meant to be. Let me give you the case in point. Adam and Eve were never meant for death. They were meant for immortality. Sin entered into the world, and because sin entered into the world, God allowed death to enter in with it because God would not allow sin to perpetually go on forever, In fact, your death is actually a death sentence. It's a judicial decision. Think about this. When you think about this, uh, Adam and Eve had a choice sitting in front of the tree touch this fruit, eat this fruit, say goodbye to me. That's what God said. And what did Adam and Eve do? They made a choice. And upon making that choice, they suffered the consequences. And the Lord said, you know what? I made this world good. If you go back to the creation um, sequence in in the beginning of Genesis, what he said: I I made the air. I made the land. I made the sea. I made the birds. And it was all good. I even made man, and he was very good. And this sin is not good. In fact, what sin has done has brought into the order a perversion of creation. Now, I understand that. The version, the perversion, the version of creation that I never meant to exist. And so the Lord is saying, I have to bring death into this situation because my goodness and immortality do not play nice with sin because it's the separation from me. And I want you to think about this is the point of separation between God and Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians um, on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to how Paul so aptly puts it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Focus on these words just really quick with me. It's not like he just took the sin off of you and threw it on Jesus. Carry that, carry that down to the grave. No, he made him who knew no sin to become sin. Jesus Christ is now hanging on the cross and has become your sin. Like incarnate completely, through and through. The being of Jesus Christ is sin. So as you think about that, that's easy for me to, in my mind, go, Jesus, the divine God, the second person in the Trinity, right? He can take that. But what about Jesus, the man? Jesus, the man is now crying out to God, regardless of this process, saying, God, why have you left me? And I want you to focus, he stays vigilant though, Because you can see this, that because of his vigilance on the cross, we became what? We became his righteousness. Cling to those words. It doesn't matter what your performance is. It doesn't matter what you think your past looks like and held it up to, you know, Pastor Greg, who's so perfect, right? I mean, he's so wonderful, No, we don't do comparisons. What it looks like is this, is the Lord has said this, I made my son who knew no sin to become your sin so that you could become righteousness. End of story. End of story. So how does God see you? He sees you through the lens of the cross. Now look at this. Romans 8, chapter 3. For what the law... For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. But at this point, as Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross and he has become sinned, who's condemned? Jesus. Jesus is fully condemned. I want you to let that sink in for a second and just marinate on this. The sin that you committed is now fully become Jesus. He is hanging on the cross, and now he is fully condemned. And that hits me in a very special way because I have to say this. You know, the cross, the Bible calls is cursed, and now Jesus is saying, I am fully separated from God. And I just think about this. There's a deeper implication because this is a full condemnation of Jesus Christ, I will never be condemned. That condemnation's already taken place. You enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will never be condemned. For I came into the world not to condemn the world. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. And you can see in a time of spiritual dryness, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this. This is like a lot of Christianese speak, I'm saying. But have you ever had a spiritually dry week where you're like, I'm just not feeling it. I'm feeling really far away from God. I'm just not, you know, it's, you know I'm listening to Z88.3. It's not doing much for me. I'm not, I'm not bopping. I don't care. The Bible devotions don't mean much to me. But yet, is the truth this? Is Jesus still there? Is he still ministering? Is he still there for you? And that's what he's saying right there that in the moment that the condemnation that is clung to Jesus Christ no longer belongs to you. You cannot claim that you are condemned in any kind of way. You can't say before the Lord, well, maybe I've just sinned too much and I'm far away or maybe I'm just not the right kind of Christian, or maybe I don't have the right kind of goods. None of that can be true because all of your condemnation has now been flung into Jesus Christ. He's become your condemnation, and now you are free. Free to be what? To be the righteousness of God. So if you have failed this week, righteously go before him and say, because of Jesus Christ, I'm here. Because of Jesus Christ, I have failed, but I am now here, Lord, at the foot of the cross, begging for your forgiveness. Boom, righteousness of God. But sometimes we can feel condemned and sometimes we can feel abandoned, but that will never be the case because Romans two verses back says this, there is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. End of story. There's nothing that your heart or your mind or the enemy can lord over that truth. I mean, if you're ever going to write, like, I don't know if some people do this, but do you write a post-it note and smack it right on your mirror so you first thing you see it in the morning. This might be the one. This might be the one that needs to stay there forever. I don't know how many times I felt like I failed Jesus Christ only for him to say, there is no condemnation and you need to move forward. And how many times my heart and my own mind has been the enemy that has torn my relationship away from God, only for God to reveal, I'm not going anywhere. I've already paid that price on the cross for you. So, therefore, where are you going? I haven't moved. Where are you going? I've claimed you. I've put my son Jesus Christ in you. Uh, The whole Trinity has come to dwell in you. And now I'm pulling you by grace towards eternity with me. Where are you going? The only place I'm going is towards you and with you. The rest is just a lie. But nonetheless, we are now talking about Jesus Christ who has become condemnation, is hanging on the cross, and what he's not struggling, he's not struggling with the faithfulness of God, he's struggling with the fellowship of God. Because you're going to hear his words throughout the rest of the scripture, how he believes in the Lord still the same. And I want to let you know something right now. You can struggle so quickly with the faith, but never understand understand this. God is faithful. He's never going to go back on his word. He's never going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, is he not? So the word and the truth that he's speaking is the same here, and Jesus sets this example. He is struggling with fellowship, but he does not struggle with faith. Look at this next words. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by, um, by night, but I find no rest. And I think this is kind of like, unique to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine stepping in from a place from eternity, infinity? Can you imagine being with God at the breaking from silence into creation, right? There's nothing, there's just the Trinity in relationship and Jesus Christ is there, right? Jesus, the son is there and he's standing before the Lord and like, what do we wanna do? And he's like, let's make light, let's do it. Let's make heaven, let's make earth, right? Let's do it. Spending all that creative time in perfect union. anyone who has ever fallen in love and lost somebody would probably understand how this feels. But this is like losing a family member, right? I've been with you forever. And now I'm sitting here condemned and I've always had direct access to you. Think about Jesus every morning when he was here on earth. What's the first thing he did? Disciples couldn't even find him for breakfast. Oh, I'm sorry. I was out hanging with God for three hours for prayer, right? Why? Because I'm so in love with him, and I want to be with him, and that's how this perfect relationship is. I speak, God listens, God speaks, I listen, and the Holy Spirit is guiding us through the whole process. And now for the first time in all of eternity, he has nothing. What a strange sensation. But also, too, think about this, from birth, The only thing Jesus has truly ever had is God. At this point, the disciples are gone. Even his mom has been torn away from him. Everything is gone. And what does he go back to? The one thing that's been constant. I want you to see that even though in this particular time, this could be the time where you could hear the enemy come creeping in and say, hey, you know what? you're alone, you're abandoned, God doesn't love you. But I want you to look at Luke 22, 44 on the screen, and I want you to see the heart of this prayer warrior. And being in agony, he gave up. And being in agony, he just totally dropped to the ground and threw his hands up and said, no, he said, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And I love this quality about Jesus. No matter what the situation, he knows what the truth is. God is for him. And even though in this moment he has to do what he has to do, he's still reaching for a God that might not be there because he knows who God is. And that could be a very troubling thing for us, but it's to be so beautiful in this particular thing. Jesus was forsaken so that you would not be. Jesus is experiencing this particular moment, so you know why? That you would never have to have this moment. You might have this feeling, but the fact is you've traded place in condemnation with Jesus Christ. You should have been condemned. He hangs condemned. What do you receive? His righteousness, which means what? To be in perfect righteousness means to be in perfect union with the Holy One, God, who has now turned your body into a temple. Is that an extreme switch? That's an extreme switch. All of your sin has corrupted the body of Jesus Christ, and now all of his righteousness has lifted you up to the place that you are the holy worship center of God. That is flattering. And what does the Lord do? He goes, let's keep praying. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, it's interesting. You can hear Jewish man Jesus speak. Listen to this. And in, in you our fathers trusted. He's talking about Jewish history. He's talking as a Jewish man. Hey, all of us, from Abraham, all we all trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. How many times did Abraham fail? How many times did David fail? And yet was he put to shame? Not in God. Not in forgiveness. And this is what I love about this. This is kind of echoes a kind of a way... Uh, Jesus is praying from the cross. Think about this. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is praying the same way that David would. David would do these kinds of prayers. My life is being crushed on all sides around me. And you know what? Everyone's trying to kill me. But I remember you, God. He doesn't say, what are you going to do about it? He says, I remember how good you used to be to me. That's a good thing to do in the middle of a crisis is not look at God and go, what have you done for me lately? And look at God and go, what are you going to do this time like you did the other times? And start remembering those other times and bring up those other times. It's a great, great way to humble a complaint is to go back and look at the success of God in your life. I remember your goodness is what what Jesus is saying and also David. And to think about this, I want to bring a really strong point in effect did God love you before you ever loved him? Look at Romans 5 8 on the screen. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before I even knew God, God loved me so much, he was prepping a way for me out of my own mess. That blows me away. And before I love God, he saw me walking on my current path all the way from here to hell and said, no, I'm going to give him an escape. And my escape will be me. Just think about this. The way that we escape from hell is by falling into the arms of God. Not into the judgment of God. Not into the condemnation of God. Not into the beating punishment rod of God, but into the waiting arms of God. And why? For one simple fact... The same thing that holds Jesus to the cross right now, love. Now we move out of a place of unanswered prayers in the darkness. Now we're going to move into the place as Christ the man hangs from the cross. Listen to the mental crumbling he goes through. But I am a worm and not a man. Isn't that amazing for the same Jesus that said to Peter when he was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter swung that sword at that guy's head, right, at Malchus' head and cuts off his ear. And he says, Peter, if I really need your help, I could call a legion of angels. And what does he say now? I'm cut off from God. I'm nothing but a worm. I'm nothing but a worm hanging on the ground. You know, we saw after the hurricane, all, you know, all the water was out. I saw some worms on the ground. And what did they do? They just, have you ever seen how wild they wiggle? That's all they can do. I mean, there's nobody even attacking them. There's just water, right? You know, and they're rolling in the grass. But all they do is they wiggle. And my boys think that's the funniest thing. But I'm looking at it and I'm reading this verse and I go, this is what Christ says. All I can do is sit here and wiggle on the cross. the cross. I have no defense. Listen to him, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is kind of an interesting thing, because as you think of the seven I am statements, Jesus opens with, I am a worm. And he goes to say, I am helpless. And then he also says this, look at at this, the Son of God being mocked from the cross. It's a very human thing to say, right, in the middle of this, knowing what you have to do. goes, But to feel the pain of the words, he's just mentally crumbling. Look at Matthew 27. This is echoed once again a thousand years later in the Gospels. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. These are very dark words because these are the same words that Jesus would say to Peter, You know, when Peter said, don't go to the cross, he said, get behind me, Satan. I have to go to the cross. There's a reason why I have to go to the cross. It is good for me to be condemned so that you wouldn't. Jesus was born so that he would never be free. He was destined to die. To die a death that we would deserve so that we could live a life we never earned, and that life is Jesus' life. Do you understand that? When you walk from here to eternity, you are living Jesus Christ's life. Perfect unity with God. And you think about this, it's wild to me because this is long before. And if you ever know anything about uh, the, the the way they set up the crucifixion, the crucifixion would be like at, at the outskirts of the city outside of the gates. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know. You can walk right outside of the, the gates and see Golgotha on the outside, right? And so it's kind of like if you were pulling off I-95 and we had a bunch of crosses lined up. And you're on your way to Sebastian. You see, welcome to Sebastian. And there's just a bunch of people being crucified. And it'd be like a bunch of Maybe even churchgoers who have Christian fishes on the back of their, of their car who proclaim to be believers in God rolling down their window and going, if you are the son of God, tear yourself off that cross. That's what this moment is like for Jesus. Being mocked by the very people he's dying for. Look at verse nine. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Isn't that an interesting statement to hear Jesus call God his God? It's weird because it's like we always picture him saying, Your father, your Abba, your daddy, right? That's like a close, intimate relationship. But at this particular place, he's identifying with his humanity like we are. He's saying, The moment that I left heaven, I was conceived in Mary, and I was birthed, the only thing I've been able to do is rely on you as God. You've been more than just a father. You've been my God. And he goes, and if you think about it, like I said, remember, Mary's been removed from him at this point. He's saying, I'm looking at you from a place of this. I'm just a man that needs his God now. Have you ever been in that prayer? And Jesus hangs from the cross and says the same prayer that I probably said, I just really need you, God, to be God right now. And it's interesting to me because we can sometimes look at Jesus as always being Jesus, but he hasn't always been Jesus Look at John chapter 1, the very book that we, uh, the very verse we opened the series on the weekend. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wasn't Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua or Joshua. That's a name we use today, and in, in, in before, in the Old Testament, even before creation, who was he? He was the Word of God, always with the Lord. And then now that he's hanging from a cross, he's speaking as Yeshua. He's speaking as Joshua. He's speaking as Jesus. And the same Jesus would become, look at verse 14 on the screen. It says, the word became flesh or human. And this human Jesus made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is this moment that he's identifying as I'm identifying as the person that you've sent me as. Human Jesus on earth, suffering for his people right now. And you can see this, Psalms 2 even decrees this. It's kind of cool that David had another echo of the prophecy. It says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, and today I have become your father. See, Jesus and God were never father and son until he was born, but he took on this role. Just think about this how beautiful is heaven? How amazing is heaven? Have you ever put on a pair of Crocs and been like, I don't like how much these feel so good on my feet right now, but they feel like air. How beautiful are the Crocs in heaven? (laughs) To trade all of that, to get rocks in your sandal for people who hate you in Israel now. He must really, really love the people that he's dying for. And I think about this as we call the incarnation when he comes from divine Jesus or divine word of God into the, the flesh of Jesus and this perfect beautiful relationship that he had in heaven is now still you know, beautiful here on earth as he's this, this, this guy that's walking around and has the father-son relationship with God praying open and it's severed and he goes, you brought me into this world. You were not only my father, you were my God. Where are you? Christ walked through a death of mortality. Just think about this. The immortal Jesus Christ put on mortality and put on death so that we could put on immortality. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for the trouble is near, and there is no, there is none to help. Listen to the loneliness there. Verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their wide mouths at me like a ra- ravening and roaring lion. Um, you can just hear what he's saying in his, um, if you know anything about like the Jewish culture and the way they would look at bulls, bulls were just a sign of br- brute power. He's just being brutally beaten, has he not? I mean, he can compare what he's happened to him with the cat of nine tails when he was whipped 39 times, the crown of thorns, they beat him mercilessly right now, they shoved him on a cross. He would say, I'm being trampled like I'm being trampled like by bulls. But he says the bulls of Bashan, which is very interesting because Bashan has been brought up, I think it's Amos, Amos chapter 4, where he talks about these, that he calls the Jews the, uh, the bulls or the cows of Bashan. Bashan was a very rich area, meaning like rich land. And so the cows that fed there were very like nice size and rich. And, and so they would say these are people that are into luxury. And so what the Lord is saying is Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. He's saying there are Jews that are more concerned with their luxury that they've received under Rome than they are with the Son of God than they are receiving the riches of heaven. He's saying that there's some, and he's talking mostly, I would say, if you think about it, the Pharisees, who are the ones that are profiting the most off of the temple at this time, right? Remember when Jesus attacked the money changers and and pulled the whip and, and drove everybody out? He was saying there are people here that are more concerned with making money off of religion than they are receiving the riches of heaven, which is Jesus Christ. And these are the people around. Him. And then think about this. He's actually saying in a composite beat, who is, you know, I heard a preacher say this once, you know, sometimes man can act like a bunch of savage animals at the same time. You can't really compare him to a bull. You can't really compare him to a lion. And both is actually not really nice to say about lions and bulls, is to compare them to man. But that's what's happening here today. But you know, this is what it is. He's feeling the condemnation of something he doesn't deserve. And I think about this too. Here in church, how many people don't come into church because of fear of condemnation? I pray that in this particular church, that is not something that we're a part of. And I'm not accusing anything, but just think about this. If we know Jesus Christ to be our condemnation on the cross, people should walk in here to receive no condemnation. Because if this is the condemnation that Jesus received on the cross, then we have no reason to give it to anybody else. He's already taken it. Now, moving on, we're going to see from mental crumbling, he's going to physical crumbling. Look at this. And this is a very intense description of the body during crucifixion. Listen to this. I am poured out like water, and all my, bo- my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breasts. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Um, I know some of you guys may have studied this, but there is a doctor who went back through Psalms 22. His name escapes me, forgive me. But um, he went back through, and he actually cataloged this as a medical examiner and said, this is what happens during crucifixion. Uh, Some of you guys know about crucifixion. You get your hands and and feet nailed to the cross, but that's just the beginning. Um, You are brutalized beforehand, but what's really the bad part about crucifixion is that it kills you slowly. It's why we get the word excruciating. It comes from crucifixion. It's excruciating way to die. You actually are very aware of all of your systems shutting down. You see, no major organs are punctured. No chopping off of the head, which now seems very humane, doesn't it? At this point, you could be up there for hours or days, and what's actually happening is the fluid is draining out of all of your tissues. Listen to what Jesus says. I am poured out like water, and my bones are all out of joint. Why? Because you're pushing up on those nails all the time trying to get up. But if you have no fluid in your joints, they come flying out of place. On top of that, it says, my heart is like wax. I understand from what the medical examiner said is as the fluid is drained, the blood around the heart becomes so sluggish and thick, it's like wax. 800 years before crucifixion became something with the Persians and the Romans. And he says, my strength is dried up like potsherd or a broken piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to my jaws, which is dehydration, and you lay me down in the dust of death. You can actually feel the dehydration go up from your legs towards your heart. Look at verse 16. "For dogs, encompass me." What he's basically saying is Gentiles. That's a common word for Gentiles. For the Gentiles, encompass me. A company of evil-doers encircle me. they have pierced my hands and feet. Remember, no one knows that this is a crucifixion until now. Up until then, they would usually disembowel you or hit you over the head with a rock. Crucifixion wasn't a thing. Yet here we have pierced hands and feet. Look at verse 17, "I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is directly connected to what Pastor Craig just spoke this weekend. And look in the screen, John chapter 19. This is what we talked about. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless. Woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it is to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Incredibly accurate, isn't it? For 850 years and never seeing a crucifixion, that must have been some sermon. That's some worship David gave that one morning. Look at verse 19. Jesus goes on and says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O O you, my help, come quickly, quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Once again, the Gentiles. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So that ends that particular portion of the scripture where Jesus is describing what he's going through from the cross. We've just gotten the inner thoughts and monologue and maybe even spoken from the cross. Most of that from Jesus Christ puts a whole different meaning on what he suffered for you, isn't it? Now listen to this new shift in tone. It's almost to me like a bright light goes off in Jesus' mind right before he passes away. And I want you to see, there was a dark nature. There was an unanswered prayer in the dark. He, he recounts how his mind is falling apart. Then he recounts how his, his body is falling apart. Now listen to this new movement. Verse 22, I will, tell you, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Who's he talking about? God. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. In the middle of all this, he says to God, I will tell all my brothers about you, God. I'm abandoned, I'm forsaken, but I know the truth. You are the truth. You are the salvation, God. And I will preach that truth no matter what my situation looks like. That's a huge example to me. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord praise him. He is encouraging us to cling to the Lord no matter the circumstance, no matter what we see in this moment. Look at you, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Or anybody who has entered into covenant with God, just go ahead and glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. Specifically who he's talking to people right now, and more importantly, he's talking to all of us, but he's talking to people who have been persecuted and suffered for God. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he has great sympathy and empathy for anybody who has suffered for God. And what is he doing? He's encouraging them. Think of this moment, alone, away, abandoned, forsaken by God. And what is he doing? He's still on point ministering. My God is amazing. Glorify him. Stay in covenant with him. And if any of you are suffering anything close to me, keep praising him. Keep pushing forward. What an amazing man. Not just a God, but what an amazing man. Look at the continuation. From you comes my praise in the congregation. Oh, my goodness. The one that has abandoned him is the one, is the source of praise. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. I want you to look at that verse and hear one thing. I'm suffering. I'm alone. I'm condemned. I stay committed to everybody in this room. My vows that I have committed to you, I will perform. When I hear that word vow, and I know it's not explicit in this moment, but I hear the vows of a groom. I hear Hosea and Gomer. If you know that story, Hosea the prophet has to marry a prostitute so that he can prove that's how the Lord loves the nation of Israel as is rebellious. Us, the sinners, are that prostitute that leads the husband over and over. And Jesus says, I stay committed to my vows so that I can come and collect my bride regardless of her performance. She is mine. I see this to the end on the cross. Look at this, verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And what is he doing? He's championing for anybody who might suffer for Jesus. He's championing for anybody who has ever felt less than because they chose God over this world. And he's saying, don't worry, because the feast that we will have after this will satisfy forever. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. He's prophesying. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and even the one who could not keep himself alive. I love that He throws us in there. He is obviously the greatest martyr of all time. Can we all agree? And yet, what he does he do is he gives a little, a little one-off for those who would be martyred. We all know that martyrs will have a special place and a special crown in heaven. And he's saying to them, I will remember you. I will remember you for what you did for me. The Lord will not forget your sacrifices. The Jesus Christ that hung from the cross is thinking about you right here, right now, and everything that you've ever had to endure. And it may not be equal to somebody who may have suffered under an Islamic regime or maybe communist China, but you have suffered in different ways. And the Lord has not forgotten you. And he says, I stay committed to our vows. And I just want to let you know that just brings such a joy in me. That moves me out of grief and into joy to know that the Lord has looked at me this particular way and said, I choose Joey this way. I choose you this way. Christ is dying on the cross. His last and final thoughts were the goodness of God, but not the goodness of God for himself, the goodness of God for you. That's an amazing God. And I still ask myself, why? Jesus, I still, I understand you're amazing. I understand your heart's amazing. I understand your character's amazing, but why? And I think about this, before we read this verse, I want to set a pace for you. We don't actually know who wrote this particular verse, but some people believe that it's Paul. But if it is Paul, I want you to put it in these terms. When Paul was originally Saul, you guys understand that in history, he was the man that was persecuting Christians, throwing them in prison, making sure that they never got to preach or killed, right? Then he, on the road to Damascus, met Jesus Christ. And after meeting Jesus Christ, he spent time with Jesus Christ. And I wonder if he, in his mind, had recalled while spending time with Jesus Christ, Psalms 22. Because as you guys know, Paul was very proud of the fact that he was one of the best rabbis around. So he knew his word. I wonder if he looked at the open hands and the open wounds of Jesus Christ, or where the scars were in his hands, and thought about Psalms 22 and looked at him and said, that's for me. You did all that for me, so the stories are true. What David said about you is true, and what you did was true. And then he wrote these words, Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He suffered all of Psalms 22 for this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to put in you my, in my, my devo time, what I wrote. I wrote in there, the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass for me, Lord. You know, Jesus Christ really didn't want anything, any part of that cross. Jesus Christ, the man, Joshua, the man, didn't want any part of this. But he looked past the cross, and he saw us. He saw me, and he saw you. And he said, for that joy, I will endure. For that joy, for the joy that Not only that we will have salvation, but the joy that we'll have when we walk into heaven and we don't even have a part of this sinful life anymore. No sin, no death, no sickness, no tears, no nothing. We just have us in Jesus Christ. He saw us in a glorious reunion and said, for that I will die. For that I will be separated. For that I will be the innocent condemned for the guilty. I can't imagine myself looking past the horror of the cross, but Jesus did, and he did it because of you, for you. And that brings this next verse up that makes it so more poignant when I read it. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Look on the screen. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, the knee bowing isn't, as powerful to me as the part where it says that, that Jesus Christ is the glory of the Father. But after reading this verse, I just want to challenge you. This is something that happens to me sometimes in worship, and I think these really crazy cinematic movie thoughts. What if, like, Jesus Christ opened these doors and just walked down the aisle right now? Wouldn't you turn to him and be like, and there he is, the glory. And without a second thought, wouldn't you just drop to your knees and go, you are to be worshiped. But there'll come a day when people who don't have that revelation, the same revelation that God chose to share with us, for whatever reason we've received that revelation, will someday have that revelation and it'll be too late. And they'll look and they'll finally know what we already know. And the thing that we get to do already now is worship God. Every time we submit to God, every time we acknowledge him as Messiah, every time we put him first, we are bowing our heart and bowing on our knees and saying, you are God. For the first time, they'll go, it's true, everything they said, and they'll drop to their knees, but it'll be too late. I decrease so he can increase. That Jesus on the cross can increase in me. And I decide to show him more and more and more because of how much he's shown me. Look at verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. So he's talking about the future. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's very final, those last words. He has done it. What has he done? Right back to John 19. Look at the verse on the screen. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is it that he has done? He has wiped out the ledger of your condemnation completely and given you victory through the cross. Those last few words, that bright flash of light that comes flying out of Jesus Christ at the end is this, I have earned my inheritance. I have stayed faithful to the bride. I am the faithful groom, and I'll see you on the other side. But it took a lot. It cost a lot. And what was that cost? It was the cost of the debt of my sin. And I just think about this. I can't trivialize this too much. I don't know if you ever watched The Passion of the Christ, but you might watch it in a new way when you read Psalms 22. 22. And that the way that I can't trivialize it anymore is that it was easy for Jesus. And I don't just mean physically, I mean spiritually. Spiritually, this was hard for Jesus to lose everything that he ever loved, and that is God. To gain everything he ever wanted, which is his bride. And so I think about this. I have an opportunity today to worship him just 1% of the way he loved me, that's the best I can do, then that's what he's going to get. He's going to get all of that 1%. I'll never know how much it meant to him to hang from that cross. I know as much as Psalms 22 you know, says. I'll know as much as what he's poured out, but I'll never know what it means to be separated from God. But I do know this, he became sin so that I didn't. He became your condemnation so you would never feel it. So if you are in this room right now and you are feeling far away from Jesus Christ, if you are feeling far away from God, that's a lie from the pit of hell, you are not. The condemnation has already been born on the cross. You have the full love of Jesus Christ. If you ask for forgiveness, you have the full righteousness of God. You have no excuse. You have no lie between you and God. God wants to be with you forever and he will have his way. You just have to receive. It's a free gift, and it's lovely, and it's beautiful. And I just want to let you know this. He meant so much to him that he traded his most perfect son for your imperfectness. You are loved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful, beautiful day. I know that the cost of all of our sin was heavy. To me, it's not worth it, but to you, it was everything. And today, I preach against this feeling that I'm not good enough. I was never good enough. I preach against this feeling that I'm not the right kind of person or you've abandoned me. That's not true. You cloaked me in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, so that I could be his righteousness forever and I could walk from here to eternity in a perfect relationship. Who am I to justify or claim or belittle the work on the cross? It's you, Jesus, that speaks and it's you, Jesus, that claims us and we are yours. We have been blood-bought. We've been purchased, we've been sealed in the receipt of the Holy Spirit, and we are yours. Lord, let us be all yours. So Lord, I thank you, and I praise you today. I pray if there's anybody here in this room that needs to hear this, they are loved by Jesus Christ, and they are free. They just have to receive, in Jesus' name, amen.